This is episode 266 of the AWS podcast, released on October 7th, 2018. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lesher here with you. Great to have you back. And I have a pretty interesting guest today. Uh, I'm joined by Byron Cook, who's the Director of our Automated Reasoning Group here at AWS. Welcome to the podcast, Byron. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for coming along. This is a, a topic that I think is going to be interesting and, and probably new to a lot of our listeners. Uh, so I, th- I think we'll, we'll go step by step. Uh, but as we tend to do at, at Amazon Byron is obviously we like to start with a customer and work backwards. So before we even get into what automated reasoning is, what is the customer problem that the automated reasoning group was trying to solve? In this particular case, there's a longer term goal, but the shorter term goal was to establish correctness for certain pieces of AWS on behalf of customers. And uh, what that was in the early days. So, for example, is the is the crypto code that customers are dependent on correct? Are the protocols, the security protocols that are being used correct? Are they doing what they are advertised? And then we very quickly learned that when because when I didn't really know anything about security before joining AWS, what we really quickly learned is that customers have direct um, questions that they wanted answered. So, for example, uh, are my uh, resource policies implemented. Have I have I configured my resource policies correctly, and have I configured my virtual networks, so my VPCs and ELBs and so on? Have I correct, have configured those correctly to give me the things I think I'm getting? And so that's the the customer centric view of the of the thing we've been doing. So it's really really focusing on that customer experience is saying, well, I'm, I'm running these new, highly automated, highly scalable systems, and I think I'm doing the right thing, but can I prove it? <laughs> that's really what we're getting to. I mean, in a sense, one thing that's both great and, and, a, and a little uh, unsettling for people who have moved to the cloud is that you know now you're in, if you're in a large enterprise, your engineers in your organization can very quickly create structures, network machine, build, you know, build up machines, network them together, put stuff on the internet, assign policies to them. And so this work allows uh, us to build tools that we put in the hands of customers that then at an organizational level, they can decide, oh, we, this is, these are the sorts of things we don't want to expose. These are the sorts of things we're comfortable with. And, and that really allows all of the great things about the cloud without uh, the parts that are that that were a little more unsettling before, for sure. So let's uh, let's define some terms here. So what is automated reasoning? So reasoning, first of all, is the, the uh, shorthand for the uh, logical reasoning or the application of logic. So um, logic typically one can use to reason about the infinite, but in finite time and space. So this this goes way back ancient techniques. So for example, Euclid who died, I think, in like 280 BC, defined a mechanism by which to, to reason about spaces. And he defined a set of truths that when you look at them, you're like, okay, I believe in those. And then everything else from that, every, every other deduction was built from consequences from those original axioms. And so we use those similar, te- the same techniques to reason about systems. So for example, in mathematics, 
there are an infinite number of prime numbers because it's there's an infinite number of them. No one's ever tried to count them all, but we know that they're an infinite number. And we've done that by a proof and logic using reasoning and logic to, to show that. And there's similar, like, for example, the four color theorem or Kepler conjecture. There are many proofs in mathematics that, that are reasoning about infinite or intractably large things using finite time and space. And then automated reasoning is the development of algorithms that search for proofs in mathematics and logic. So we we write code that finds a proof and then typically the search for the proof is difficult and then the checking of a candidate proof once it's been found is typically quite easy uh, to automate. And so the automated reasoning is the application of the, of, of the two techniques, computers and logic and mathematics and proof. So this is a really interesting discipline and I'll point out this point that uh, Byron's done some amazing presentations at uh, various reinvents of, of uh, days past uh, that are available, uh, and I'll put some links on the show notes so you can see some of the the reasoning process, etc. But this is really about figuring out how to prove that something works, and then actually proving it using using automation that that Euclid didn't have available to him at the time. And mm-hmm. so, what does the uh, the automated reasoning team do at AWS? Like, what's what's its purpose? So there is no higher assurance than proof and logic, right? And so what was happening on the AWS side is that customers were increasingly asking, so, you know, okay, so you're, you say the virtualization stack is correct. How do you demonstrate that? No, you say the uh, cryptography is correct or the protocol is correct. How do you demonstrate that? And so there was a, a sense that, we needed to, as a as an organization we need to really raise the bar on how we establish that the systems are doing what they're saying and also how we demonstrate that to customers and uh, so I uh, joined with the intention of trying to find some areas where that where this application of my research discipline could help AWS and help customers uh, and so so we in the early days tried to identify some projects where we thought we might be able to succeed. So we identified uh, essentially four projects and then began executing on those in parallel. And all of those have gone quite well. And so then we've, everything's continued to grow and we're doing more and more. So we, broadly speaking, are applying, you know, different tools that come from the research community or tools we write ourselves or typically tools we write in concert with our friends from the academic community, which are open source and then apply them to the problems we have internally and also uh, make services that are available to customers. And so what's an example of, uh, of where you've used uh, this kind of process uh, on a project that's, that's helped customers? Is, is there a, a good specific one we can use as kind of like a, a stalking horse to talk about the application of this uh, discipline? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you two. One that's directly customer-facing that customers call today and then one that's in some sense, uh, giving customers more assurance, but they're not calling directly. So the one that the customers are uh, calling directly today, we call it uh, Zelkova. There's the IAM resource policy language. To, to typically, start with JSON and then put in different uh, pieces to you know protect your uh, buckets in S3 or your keys in KMS, etc. So that policy language is very expressive. So it has essentially inside of it, it has what we call disjunction and conjunction. So like ors and ands, negation, uh, strings, string pattern matches, and then a number of uh, uh, service specific uh, conditions. Uh, 
And the question of, for example, if you're given any, just some, you, you don't know which one, but you're, you're given some policy and you want to ask, does this policy allow uh, world readable or world writable access to my bucket? By, does there exist some username, you know, some, some user that could access this and I don't know who that is? That problem is, is actually a piece-based problem. So it's, it's a quite, it's a intractable problem. Doesn't, it doesn't grow well with regards to the number of possible inputs that you're going to try and use when testing to see if that's true. And so we uh, make it, we uh, reduce the, that question to one of constraints and then use an off-the-shelf, what we call a satisfiability modulo theories solver, which uses a combination of about 15 techniques that were developed during the 50s and the 60s and then some uh, ones from the 2000s together in a way that even though the problem that it's trying to solve is MP complete uh, makes it feel for most industrial applications makes it feel like a P time problem. So we can solve that quite efficiently. And then that's being used in a number of ways. So it's quite a general tool. So you can, it's, it's a, a, actually a policy, sorry, policy comparison engine. So you can take two policies and ask which is less permissive than the other, but then you can, you can, uh, hot rod that to do various things. So one one example of where that's being used is in the S3 console today. When you go to the console and you have a uh, S3 bucket that is potentially open to the world, there's a little icon saying open. And that icon is being displayed because there's been a call that's been made to Zelkova and has determined that your policy allows world readable uh, or world readable access to your to your bucket. And that's being used in other places. So for example, Macy, uh, it's being used in Trusted Advisor. Uh, it's being used in um, IoT Device Defender, uh, AWS Config. So there's a number of places where uh, fe features have been added to existing services or new, new services that are enabled uh, by this reduction in mathematics and logic to, to a tool that we run internally within, within our team. And that's a really interesting way for the for the for the service teams to be able to get access to what is quite a complex and intensely mathematical domain, and and not have to. It's kind of like writing your own crypto, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, don't do it. Exactly. So it's, it's a very tricky problem, but we solve it solve it once and for all via this reduction in, in mathematics to a constraint solver, and then the constraint solvers, you know, pr produce a proof that we can look at. I, I, I by the way, I promised you. To, Two stories. So the other story is... That's right, you did. Uh, ...is um, <laughs> uh, the use of proof to establish correctness of S2N, pieces of uh, certain properties of S2N. So S2N is the TLS implementation used within much of AWS and Amazon. Uh, so, for example, S3 uses S2N as its TLS implementation. And so what we've done is we've taken the source code from S2N. This, it's all open source. Uh, and then applied uh, some program verification tools. A particular tool we use is called Saw from from a vendor called Gawa, and we have proved that the implementation of HMAC is correct uh, according to the NIST specification. That the uh, deterministic random bit generator is correct, and that the implementation of the TLS hands TLS handshake is correct. And then that's all automated and 
for every every time the code is modified, that proof is replayed. So we reestablish that proof continuously through the lifetime of the of the software package, and then that software package gets used in, in a number of places within within AWS. So that's you don't the customers aren't calling that proof directly, but on the other hand, their information is protected as it's moving across the internet uh, using using the TLS. And they can also use, obviously, S2N themselves if they want to because it is, as you said, uh, yeah. an open source library. Right. And, and so, you know, this is an interesting domain and it feels a lot better than uh, handwritten unit tests and, and the way that many software engineers are used to testing or trying to test their systems. Is this something we should just be using for everything or is this very specific to certain domains? Uh, so you don't need a proof that you can go to the store to get a carton of milk right there there's there 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 the, the, the question is you know like there there's some software that absolutely for for human safety or for security needs to be right and then there are certain programs where correctness is important but it's not worth necessarily the effort of applying these kinds of tools and that and that so that that there are different there are different kinds of Tools you can use for, her, for example, to find bugs or uh, try and improve the quality of the code. But the F, the activities that, that my group is involved in primarily are on uh, using proof to establish that for all possible inputs, all possible environments, that the code's correct. And we apply a number of here. So, so typically, these problems are undecidable or intractable. And so, what we tend to do is we try to find niche areas where heuristics can be developed that will work in practice. And so, for example, the application of these techniques to policy analysis or network analysis, that works great. It's very scalable. Uh, you don't really feel the burn of the MP completeness or P space. Um, and then in the proof of uh, crypto or proof of pieces of the hypervisor, those tools that we use sometimes will fail, and failure looks like it'll it'll come back and say I couldn't find a proof, or it'll just go forever, and you end up killing the the, the proof search. And so, the application of those uh, techniques is not for the weak at heart. And uh, so, then you you really only want to apply those in cases where correctness is, is pretty important. And so that's where I guess really it's interesting. Some of the examples we've used are those very foundational components, as you said. You know, the hypervisor, the the policies you set around security, uh, the scanning of security, or the, or the scanning of configuration drift, etc. Those ones uh, seem to be the the right place to expend that that not inconsequential effort because you get the right that's return. Right. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the, so this area has been used in the past. So for example, um, proving the correctness of floating point division. And floating point algorithms after the FDiv bug from Intel, uh, uh, Airbus and Boeing apply these techniques to prove the correctness of flight control software. NASA uses this kind of technique to prove the correctness, for example, of pieces of Mars rover. Um, you see this in um, railway switching in Europe. So there's a, there's a number of applications where, when correct when correctness is important and there's a business need, then there, there are techniques that you can apply. You don't, you don't want to do it to, to show that your headphones are correct that you're using to listen to music on. <laughs> good, good point. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned quite a few different dom- domains there that uh, that apply this. That it's probably not uh, not apparent to the to the layperson. 
how did you get interested in, in this domain? Like it, it feels it feels very specialist yet has potentially broad applications. How did you get into so it? So I was doing a PhD and didn't uh, – so my advisor was funded in part by Intel. Intel had just uh, – there was the – I don't know if you know about the floating point division bug. I recall it well. Well, we couldn't trust couldn't trust spreadsheets exactly. anymore. So they, so they had to. Re- I think it was a half a billion dollars and replaced hardware, and so they decided to invest in this area that 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 I'm a, a specialist in now. So I did an internship in the group that they had formed a year before to investigate the use of these kinds of techniques. So these techniques were very blue skies research uh, toy examples only. And so they were trying to apply these techniques to, to real circuits. And so I did an internship there and then I um, kept up with that team. And then I joined a company that was par- that partnered with them and then applied these tools. And then, you know, the th- things went from there. So I sort of by luck and by um, chance, I d- learned about this area and it was super interesting. And, and it's, it's, it's what I've done ever since. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's an interesting way to get into something, and uh, I, I guess uh, it's it's probably uh, un- unusual that your you and your team are a key part of the cloud, uh, as as it's again one of those underlying components that we don't always see. How do you go about working with with some of the our, our internal service teams that deliver services to customers, and also our, our field facing staff as well? How do you interact with them? I, so I live in New York City, and I'm in London often. And when I joined AWS, because a, a lot of the um, critical mass behind Amazon is in Seattle, I thought that was probably a might, might not be a great career choice. But it turned out to be like the best thing ever. Uh, and the reason is that in locations where there are a lot of customers and up and down Sixth Avenue, there are many, many, many AWS customers from finance uh, to media, et cetera. So there's a lot of solutions architects, technical account managers, professional services, and so on. So I was placed on a floor with solutions architects, professional services, and so on. And what I became very clear very quickly, two things. First of all, these folks on, on this floor knew a lot about the problems that customers were having. Secondly, at Amazon, if you understand the problems of the customer, like you're so ahead of the game. So what I very quickly learned is that I understood the problems of the customer. I was going on off and talking to the chief information security officers or security team members from customers in the area, financial services, pharma, media. And I had a great set of problems that if I could solve a couple of them, if I could move the needle on a couple of these problems that I was really well positioned to show value and to to do more and more. And so when I visit service team groups, service teams are spread all over, right? So we have folks working in Dresden and Israel and South Africa and uh, Seattle and Herndon, Virginia, et cetera. When When I'm at those sites, I have many customer anecdotes. I have a lot of data from customers um, and uh, so that puts me in the position to know what I'm talking about. Secondly, because we have all these different projects going on, we have a pretty great network into the different service teams. So we have a great relationship with the crypto team. We have a great relationship with the virtualization team, hardware team, 
config, etc. So at this point, now because we're solving hard problems on behalf of customers with a number of different service teams, those relationships have grown. And so we're in, in a real, really good situation to understand the engineering challenges and the customer challenges and the uh, and where the service teams are at and help make priori- prioritization decisions, et cetera. So, so it's been like a sort of a dream come true, actually. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it must, it must be quite a, um, a, a satisfying feeling to go from that intense a- academic focus and, and working on, I guess, you know, furthering the state of the art to to not just uh, being able to implement it, but do it at a, at a literal global scale with direct customer feedback. That's, yeah. that's kind of nice. No, that's <laughs> doesn't happen right. that yeah. often. So in, so in previous um, places I've worked, it's, 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 there's been a considerably more red tape or you know uh, cultural mismatch be- between the research organizations and the and the service teams or product groups and at Amazon and AWS I haven't really seen any, any of that so there's a, a, a real openness on the part of service teams to adopt techniques that are working and and the customers are very excited about this kind of work service teams are excited and the folks that I've hired into my team are excited and many people on my team I've known for 10 15 20 years and so many of us have worked together in different places and we've formed here and are working together on a number of problems. And that's been really fun. That's great. And, and so what are some of the, uh, I guess, the, the really challenging problems your team is, is chewing over at the moment that, that you'd like to solve? Out of the gate, we built tools that would have immediate impact and required essentially no customer interaction whatsoever. Right? So you or just using S3, you go to the console and it says, hey, it looks like you have a bucket that's open. Config alarms you when a change has been made somewhere in your organization that uh, where a customer has exposed a, a bucket to the world or you know, et cetera. To go further, it's great to have a little bit of customer interaction. What would be great is if we had machine-readable threat models from customers and perhaps we had automation around synthesizing those threat models or like a game-like interface where we walk the customer through the different kinds of threats that they should be worried about as they're building, a, building an application. And putting together the mitigations that customers are going to implement to protect themselves against uh, threats that we're worried about. And then using the sort of tooling that we've built to date or t- tooling that will work in the future to prove the correctness of the mitigations that they've decided should be put in place. Uh, so that's that's an area. And so when we look at how customers are using the tools from our group, when they're using them in a deep and meaningful way, what they're really doing is they're evaluating the threats that they should be worried about, and then they're configuring the tools to essentially prove the correctness of the mitigations that they put into place. So to, to make that more of a first-class citizen would be would be really cool. So that's something that we're trying to figure out how to do. And so we're doing that uh, currently and internally with teams. So we've currently application security reviewers typically meet with service teams to talk about new services or new features. And we uh, manually put together plans for for mitigating risks and using our kinds of tools to prove the correctness of the mitigations if that's appropriate. But what would be cool in the future is for all that to be machine-readable, first-class, synthesizable, automatable, and I think that would be really neat. The second thing is, um, so to so so currently, um, let's say you want to be, you want to build an application and you want to achieve 
PCI uh, compliance certification. So what you do is you uh, hire an, uh, an, you know, an auditor and you, and you work through the different controls uh, and you look for ways that the auditor can try and establish that those controls are in place. And that's requires a considerable amount of human judgment and it requires a considerable amount of human uh, time. And in, and in essence, what's really happening is that they're sampling. They're looking at certain cases. It's not complete. It's, it's some level of evidence, but you're not assured that there can't be a bug that would break compliance. That's, that's, what's ha- that's what happens today. So that's true for FIPS 140-2. That's true for PCI. It's true for FedRAMP, HIPAA, et cetera. I think that in with the proof logic work, we're in the situation where we could really change the game. One could imagine that the rules for compliance are, are written down in a way that automated reasoning tool can establish them. And then, as I said, sort of earlier in our chat, there's sort of two parts to proof. One is finding the proof, and then the second thing is looking at the proof and making sure that the proof actually meets the constraints of of what a proof is. And that that checking part is a lot of checking that the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, but it's it's very detail-oriented, but it's not very interesting in some sense. And there's lots and lots of tools that you can check check that a proof is correct with. The hard part is finding the proof. So one could imagine, for example, for PCI, you know, like, and it won't be for all of, all of PCI, but pieces of PCI can be encoded using tools that we have today. And maybe in the future, we'll have tools that can encode all of PCI. As it continuously establish that you're PCI compliant, a proof is constructed. And that proof can be, uh, can be automatically audited by a third party, third party or a third um, uh, piece of software, open source software that the community has agreed on is the, is the auditor software. And so that could really dramatically decrease the time to market and really radically reduce the cost both for customers and AWS to to achieve certification so that's that's two problems that we're looking at now and they're really really exciting problems it's a great to see i guess that thought process of applying intense mathematics processing power automation the 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 reduction of uh, of variability and risk due to the human element as well makes it makes it really exciting. So clearly, as we make these more complex systems, we can prove that they work with more sophisticated uh, techniques. So often, what happens is that in- engineers are trying to get their code correct and they're conservative, so they end up not being as aggressive as they could be because they're not sure if the more aggressive strategy is correct. And so what we've found. At AWS, but also in you know in my twenty years in the industry, I've seen a lot where you'll realize that the proof actually allows you to be more aggressive and to make code more that's more scalable, more higher performance. It'll be cool as these tools get into the hands of customers that would allow them to to reduce their cost using AWS and to make their systems more scalable, higher performance, because they know that the higher performance strategy still meets the uh, compliance and security constraints that they're trying to meet. Yeah, it's a re- really exciting time. And uh, Byron, it's been great to have you on the show to, I guess, uh, shine a light and demystify just a little bit what uh, what automated reasoning is and, and how it can be used by our customers. Yeah, thanks for having me. Fantastic. And thanks for listening. We do love to get your feedback at podcast at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.